0: Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, this word that men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, for the benefit not only for the church in that era, but for the benefit of the church today, we pray that you would be pleased to speak through your word by your spirit into our hearts, into our minds, and transform us by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us go through life um, even as professing Christians, living more like practical atheists than we want to admit. What do I mean by that? We have an intellectual atheist. an intellectual atheist is one who denies the existence of God. They, they have that as a, as a general assertion in their life, intellectually. And then they live that out practically. God has no involvement in their life and their mind. They don't live as if he exists. I would argue that, that many professing Christians live like practical atheists. We suggest that God is there. But his being there has no real practical significance to our daily lives. What, what do I mean By this, let me try to sketch it out a little more. We say we believe Jesus is Lord. We confess that God has created all things and is Lord of all things, but we operate most of each of our days as if the Lord, as if really the Lord is not Lord of all things, but as if we are Lord of all things. Now, so how can you see that? I'll I'll give you an example. We imagine we're in control of things. So we plot and plan, and I'm not telling you not to plot or plan, right? Plot sounds kind of like evil, right? I don't mean it that way. Right? But we plot and plan and and we work. Those are all good. And then we do something else. We worry and we don't pray. Be, because we worry because we think ultimately we're sovereign. That we're in control. And we don't pray. How, how do you see it? We, even further than that, there are those moments um, that come and begin to snap us out of this mindset. It's, they snap us out of this, what I might call the delusion that we live in, of practical atheism. There are these moments that come in which we are helpless and we're not in control of anything. If you've ever stood over someone you love in a hospital... And heard the doctors in the hospital say to you, we don't really have any resources to help this person. You understand what I'm talking about. It's in that instant that you know that your delusion of control is just that, a delusion. We know in that instant that their life is in the hand of God and not our own. I'll give you a recent example. We see these wildfires raging through Southern California and burning this house and not that house. And it's all dependent on the shifting of the winds. And we know that we're not in control. When the economy takes a downturn and our retirement or our employment gets swept away, We know in that instant we're not in control. We attempted to be in control for years and years. We learn in those instances that our belief that we ever had any power over anything is a sham. And at these times, we know something that's good to know. You know what it is? Our creatureliness. We know that we can't control our destinies, that we can't even guarantee our next breath. Do you know that your heart's gonna beat in the next beat? Or that you're gonna draw your next breath? You might say, well, well God gave me the kind of body where the heart keeps beating. If I'm, generally, if I'm generally pursuing a healthy lifestyle, my heart will generally keep beating for a long time and I'll keep breathing for a long time, and, and that's true. But the Lord is the one who sustains any of that. And where do we turn when we recognize this? Well, it depends on what we, someone's getting a phone call. See, no control (laughs) over anything. Where, where, Where do we turn when we recognize these things? It depends on what we believe about God and ourselves, doesn't it? Where we turn be- depends on what we believe about God and ourselves. Do we believe this, mat- this material universe is all there is? If so, then it's all random. It's purposeless. It's just an accident. It's pure chance. There's no explanation beyond that. Your suffering has no purpose. Your success has no purpose. Your life has no purpose. You are random, random biological accident. Things just happen. It is what it is and it is no more. Do we believe in a kind of pantheism or or Eastern mysticism? Then we're going to appeal to something like karma. See, it's just the working out of the laws of some cruel and exacting reaping and sowing that's happening in the universe. Not the reaping and sowing the Bible's talking about. Where you have a good God, but a, a kind of law-based system of a universe that's just exacting this sort of cruel cause and effect, what goes around comes around sort of thing to your life. You know, you did something at some point and the, now the universe is back to get its due. Do we believe in some kind of paganism? then it's likely you appeal to some kind of fate. The gods are playing games, and you're just pawns. Your only hope is to find some way to appease these capricious deities. Do we believe in deism? In other words, do we believe in a God who is unitarian, not triune? A single-person God. Then we tend to believe in a a God who has created and wound up the universe with laws, and now he's just sitting back and watching it play out. He occasionally intervenes if we ask him to do so. But otherwise, he's just letting the universe run its course. But folks, as Christians, these are not the gods we profess. We profess the God of the Bible. We profess God. The triune God. We profess the God who is one God and three co-eternal, co-equal persons. The triune God does not just create in some moment, give laws, and then just withdraw and watch things play out. Creation is not God's act. I want you to hear this because I think we often misunderstand this. Creation is not just God's act to manufacture a bunch of stuff and then give it some laws for its motion and then sit back and watch what happens to it from some long distance, even even if we tag to that description that he did so knowing beforehand how it would all play out. I think a lot of professing Christians at least implicitly believe, implicitly believe in a God who created all this stuff manufactured it, and then then he sits back and watches it all fall apart. Of course, you know, we'll admit he knew that was going to happen. And then, at some point in history, he lovingly intervenes to offer a plan of salvation by which humans can get themselves out of this mess. With God's help, of course. It's kind of the Benjamin Franklin approach to, to understanding how we relate to God, right? God helps those who help themselves, the American gospel. Jesus is like Ben Franklin on the cross shouting out, God loves you, and he helps those who help themselves. But folks, that's not the biblical picture of God, nor is it the gospel. This is not the biblical picture of creation. We profess that our triune Lord created out of the overflow of his love and that this creative love is directed toward a purpose, toward an end. And what is that end, that purpose toward which creation is directed? It's the exaltation of God's glory through fellowship between our triune God and his people. Creation is not simply manufacturing stuff. And God's governance of that stuff is not simply him maintaining it. It all has a purpose. It all has an end. And all of God's creating and sustaining is toward that end. Thus God's creation cannot, God's creation cannot even be grasped apart from God's providence. Cannot grasp his creation apart from his providence. So what is his providence? Well, think of the root word there in providence. What word do you hear? Provide. God's providence is his providing, his care, his providence is purposeful. God creates and then providentially governs all things as he carries this creation forward to its intended end, which is redemption and glory and fellowship with the blessed Trinity. Our Father decreed to create and to provide for his creation and to redeem his creation through the person of his Son, and he sent the person of the Holy Spirit to effectually carry all that to its appointed end. I don't, know if, I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying here, Christian, because this is so key to understanding your entire life. Every person in God, the whole of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has purposed has purposed, and is working toward your appointed end. Did you hear that? Toward your appointed end, which is eternal fellowship with the blessed Trinity. And it is the Son of God who reveals this to us. He reveals it to us. God spoke of this in various ways and through various prophets, Old Testament prophets, He spoke of it to our fathers that way. But the shadow in the Old Testament has now given way to the substance. The servants have given way to the heir, the master, the son. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a summation of the Old Testament revelation of God. But in these last days, in this era of fulfillment, in these days, this time, this fullness of time in which God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In this era that the Old Testament pointed to, he has spoken to us by or in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now last week we spent time discussing how the Son is so much greater than all who came before. The Son is the revelation of God. It is in the Son that we know the Father. He is the final word. Do you hear that? That is so important for us to get a hold of Christians. All of those visions and dreams and prophecies coming through prophets of the Old Testament, those were lesser those were the shadow to the substance. Those were the servants to the sun or the air. But now the sun, the substance, the air has come, and he is the final word. We learned that creation is through him last week. We talked about that. It's through him, and that he is the, sub, the same substance as the Father. He's the radiating forth of God's glory as beams radiating forth from the, br- the brightness of the sun. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The sun incarnate. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The sun coming as man. Incarnate. In carne. You guys know what carne is because you have tacos that are carne asada, right? Okay? <laughs> carne flesh. Right? But you don't eat human carne, thank God. <laughs> That'd be a whole nother conversation. But the Son of God came in flesh. He was incarnate. He took on humanity. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That is the great end time revelation of God and his purposes. When the Father created all things through the Son, he had a purpose for all of it. And there is a purpose, a telos, and a pointed end in all of this. As, and the coming of the Son of, as the Christ. Here's what I'm driving at. The coming of the Son as the Christ reveals that purpose to us. Jesus is greater than all who came before. So last week I talked about two ways that Jesus was greater in this revelation of God's purpose. And this week I'm going to talk about two more reasons that he's greater than all who came before. And they both tie to the doctrine of providence. Here's the first one. The Son provides governance. Hear that? The Son provides governance. And it's almost a way of saying the same thing twice. I'm being intentionally redundant. The Son provides governance over all his creation. Now hear this, over all his creation to its appointed end. Hear that? That too is important. It's not just that the Father creates through the Son just to make stuff. And it's not just that the Father governs through the Son just to maintain stuff. It's that the Father creates through the Son and governs through the Son to an appointed end. There's a purpose to it. Look at Hebrews 1.3 to drive at this. The Son providing governance over all his creation to its appointed end. He is the irradiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he that being the son now notice this phrase upholds the universe <clears throat> that's that's like it's a way of saying in greek the age the ages everything holds it by the by the word of his power all that's created the worlds some translations might say he upholds let, let me let me put it this way everything that's not god he upholds the, by the word of his power Do you hear me? Okay? If it's God, it's uncreated. You follow? If it's not God, it's created. Easy enough? God uncreated, not God created. Okay? He upholds everything that's not God, all his creation. By the word of his power. Now, first notice the word he. It's a rough he upholds. It's a reference to the Sun. He, the Son, upholds the universe. The Son is the agent through whom the Father providentially governs all things. Just as the Son is the effectual agent through whom the Father creates all things, so the Son is the effectual agent through whom the Father governs all things or provides. But here it's actually the Son's word that's being emphasized. Now, notice, he is the Son. He has always been the Son, So he's not only Lord of all creation post-resurrection. As the Son, he's Lord of all creation from the beginning. He upholds all things. Now second, look at that word upholds. The word uphold really has two senses to it. He upholds the universe in the sense that he sustains the creation. He maintains it. He, He keeps it from collapsing back into nothingness. See, the universe did not create itself, did it? And it cannot sustain itself. When God put the planets in the sky, what keeps them there? You didn't give yourself breath, did you? And you can't even sustain a single breath on your own. The fall into sin, folks, could have brought everything to nothing. Nothing. But the sun sustains it. Further, the word uphold also means it's governed to its appointed end. Uh, Matthew Poole, who was a Puritan commentator, said this this word imports this idea of sustaining, feeding, preserving, governing, throwing down, raising up, comforting, and punishing. The idea that all that it requires to govern, not only maintain his creation and keep it going so it doesn't collapse back in on itself, but to govern it toward its appointed end and everything that's required for that. And third, the son it says upholds or governs or sustains all creation by the what? By the word of his power. Another way to translate this is by his powerful word. It's speaking of Christ's command. He speaks, he commands, and that word is always effective and powerful. He commanded the light to be, and it was. He commanded you to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, and you what? Came alive. Look at Colossians chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1, keep your hand in Hebrews, but Colossians 1 and verse 15. If you're not familiar, again, with your Bibles, you have in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then you have Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Once you get to First and 2 Thessalonians, or 1 and 2 Timothy, or Titus, or Philemon, or Hebrews, you've gone too far, right? So Colossians chapter 1... And look at verse 15, keeping in mind the language you've already seen in Hebrews 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This means he has the supremacy. He's the heir. Remember, he's appointed the heir of all things. The firstborn. Who's the firstborn in this society? The heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. For by him, this is speaking of the Son, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What's that talking about? The things you can see, those things that created things that have extension in time or space. The material created things. And invisible, what are those things? Angels, demons, souls, the things that don't have extension of time and space, that spiritual stuff. He created that physical, material stuff, and he created that spiritual stuff. He created all of it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and notice what it says here, and in him, all things, what? Hold together. They would come apart. As a result of the fall into sin, if he wasn't holding them together, to what end? The Son governs, bears up, sustains, provides for all his creation by his powerful word. This means that everything in all creation is upheld and governed by the Son to its appointed end. That's where, folks, the miracle of the incarnation ought to just entirely blow you away. I mean, the Christian claim when we come around at Christmas is that the God who created all things and who upholds them became a baby, took on humanity, was born and dependent on his mother. And at the same time, while in total infant dependency upon his mother who held him, little did she know that he was sustaining her breath. The son governs all things, bears them up, sustains them, provides for all creation by his powerful word. This means everything in all creation is upheld and governed by him. Keep that in mind. But to an appointed end. Let me give you some examples of how comprehensive the Son's governance of all creation is. Now I'm going to ask you to go through some Old Testament texts with me and a couple of New Testament texts fairly quickly. And I'm just going to give you some categories. I'm not going to try to prove a whole case here. It would take too long. But I wanted to give you some categories just to lay out for you some of the things that the Bible says that the Son or that God is, is sovereign over, providentially governing. So let me start with the first category. You Ready? Good and evil events. Did you hear that? Good and evil events. Look at Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And then look at verse 21. Job chapter 1 and verse 21. Job has lost his family, he's lost everything he has. He has a wife left, a wife who's encouraging him to curse God and die, right? So he, he may or may not be pleased about the fact that she's still around. But here he is. I'm not sure. I'm not kidding you, folks. This is a rough situation. Let's be real about how life looks. So here he is, and he says this, and he said, verse 21, and he said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return.'" The Lord gave, gave me my family, gave me my wealth, gave me my stuff, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now how has most of this stuff been taken away? Storms have come in. And some natural occurrence or event came in and knocked down buildings and killed his children. And Job says, the Lord has taken away. The Lord was in that storm. Do you believe that? that? That's what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 45. I say good and evil events because Job had the Lord giving him to him and the Lord taking away. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. He's talking about calamitous events that happen. I am the Lord who does all these things. He's not talking about moral evil here, he's talking about what we might call natural evil. We, we use the word natural evil not to ascribe some kind of moral quality to it, but, but the, the fires that happen in Ventura. Okay? Now, I don't know if there was an arsonist and an actual moral evil that occurred there on the part of an arsonist. Here's what we know. Minimally, there's a natural evil that's occurred. Something horrific has happened that has destroyed people's homes and lives. It's horrific. And we see it in horror. And I watch a fire battalion chief stand in front of it and talk about how the fire is completely out of control. They don't know where it's going to go. They can't, they can't seem to contain it. And he says this term that's so natural to humanity, I don't blame him for it. He says this term, well, we don't know what Mother Nature is going to do. And I think, is that, is that where you're appealing, Mother Nature? The Bible says, and I think people would be outraged if he said this, We don't know what the Lord's going to do. The Lord created this calamity, and we have no idea what he's going to do with it. He'd probably lose his job. He'd probably be strung up. But that's what Isaiah says. He's saying he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Do you believe that? Let me talk about the story of Joseph moved from good and evil events to sinful acts. God is providentially controlling sinful acts. What? Think of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers become jealous of Joseph. They sell him into slavery. First they plot to kill him, and then they sell him to slavery. Now, essentially, by their actions. He ends up in slavery in Egypt because of the actions of the brothers. Now, think about this. If you're Joseph, and your brothers have done this evil act to you, though you were innocent and had done nothing bad to them, you're probably going to spend the rest of your life dwelling upon what evil men your brothers are, and what horrific events uh, and actions they've taken toward you, and they were evil, and they did commit horrific acts that led to him being in slavery in Egypt, led to him being eventually imprisoned in Egypt. But through it all, the Lord brings him to the end of those events where he ends up with a position in in power in Egypt to do what? Care for his own people. In fact, to provide for his own brothers, the ones who put him in that situation in the first place. And what do we find Joseph dwelling on? His brother's evil acts? They come to us. How could you possibly forgive us? And Joseph's response, you intended, you meant it. Think about this. You plotted this for evil. That was your evil intention, but God meant it. Hear what he said, God intended it for good. We twist that and say God used it for good, as if God didn't know these evil acts were gonna occur, as if God was not governing these evil acts on the part of the brothers, and that somehow God came and said, oh, they did that, Well, okay, I'll twist it this way to help them out. That's not what happened. That's not the language. The language is God designed it. He purposed it for good. And that's what Joseph's dwelling on, which is exactly why Joseph can love his brothers and forgive them and provide for them because he's not dwelling on their evil actions. He's dwelling on the God who provides for him. Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23, just talking about the crucifixion of Christ. If we will, the most evil act ever at the hands of men. The crucifixion of the Son of God. If there were a more sinful act, I know not what it is. And how does Peter reflect on it in Acts 2.23? This Jesus delivered up. He's talking about going to the, the cross. According to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You hear what he's saying? God planned the crucifixion of Jesus. God providentially worked toward, he even announces it in Genesis 3.15, the crucifixion of the son, and he providentially worked toward that end. The most heinous, sinful act in human history killing the one who is holy, sinless, and undefiled. He planned that act, but it was carried out by the hands of lawless men. So even their evil acts are under his sovereign, providential hand. The free acts of men. Listen to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16 and verse 9. The heart of man plans his ways. So you're supposed to plan your ways. I'm not telling you don't work plan, right? Here you go. It's okay. Plan your ways. The heart of man plans his ways, but look what he says. But the Lord establishes his steps. You can make your plans, but you have no idea what the Lord's doing. No idea. He's going to establish them. Even in your free acts, the Lord is directing where you're stepping. You're planning, but the next step you take, the Lord brings you to. Chance occurrences in Proverbs 16 and verse 33. Even so the things we call chance. The lot is cast into the lap. You know what the lot is? They're casting lots to figure out. who It's a chance. It's a game of chance, if you will, right? It's like the flipping of the coin. Will it be heads or tails? Okay. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the things that we see as chance occurrences are the decisions of the Lord's. The details of our lives Psalm 139, Psalm 139 and and verse um, 16, Psalm 139 verse 16, the details of our lives the Lord is providing in, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every one of your days, every single day of your life was written in God's book before there was yet one of them. Believe that? Jesus gets at the same thing in Matthew 10, Matthew 10 and verse 29. Very instructive passage coming from our Lord where he says, In verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now listen to this. He's talking about sparrows. You know the little birds? If you know what a sparrow is, sorry, I'm not. What is a bird expert even called? Okay, I don't even know what a bird expert is called, but I'm not a bird expert, whatever that is. Somebody out there knows. (laughs) All right, sorry if I don't. Um, But a sparrow Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? A sparrow does not fall to the ground and die apart from the father. Hear that? The father's governing every detail through the son, every detail of life, even what sparrows live and what sparrows die, and when they live and die. Look what he goes on to make application of that. Look what he says. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Not one hair falls from your head apart from the Father's care for you, apart from the word of Jesus' power. Ornitholo- th- ornithologist? Ornithologist. Thank you, whoever texted that to me. I appreciate <laughs> texts in the middle of my sermon. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thank you. But, but even the <laughs> even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Not one hair falls from your head without the Lord accounting for it. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If the Lord is watching out for the sparrow, if he's numbering the hairs on your head, what do you have to worry about? Why fear? You're more valuable than any sparrow, and you're more valuable than a head of hair. Some of you really appreciate that insight. <laughs> the details of our lives the Lord provides for by the word of his power. The affairs of nations, Daniel 2, 21, I'm not gonna have you turn there, but but it says that there it says that the the, the Lord appoints kings and he removes them sets up leaders and removes them. In Proverbs 21.1, that the, the Lord has the heart, heart of the king in his hand and he turns it like a stream where he wants it to go. Even the president, whether you like this guy or not, or you liked the last president or not, he is there because the Lord providentially put him there and the Lord turns his heart where he wants it to go. You might say, but I can't possibly figure out how that works. okay. Look, I can go on multiplying examples. I only gave these to cover a few categories and drive home that the sun is governing governing everything to its appointed end. And you might ask, does that remove the liberty of the creature? Does that remove human responsibility? My answer is no. Does that make God guilty of moral evil or the author of evil? My answer is no. He governs all things in such a way that he does not remove the liberty of the creature, nor is he the author of evil. But I can't comprehend that. Neither can I. (laughs) Who can know the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's our response to it. Here's what I know, the Son, through whom all things were created, is also upholding and carrying all things to their appointed end. Let me give you an analogy that you might understand. When you procreate, you understand this if you're a parent, if you don't, you still probably understand it. When you procreate, you sustain those children or they won't survive, don't you? When a baby has been given birth to, if the parents do not feed that baby and care for that baby, that baby will not survive You sustain that baby's life. You don't just, if you will, procreate. You sustain. You maintain their life. But you do more than keep them alive. If you're a good parent. (laughs) You guide those children to their proper end. You carry them forward to be adults. And as Christians, we know that you're actually guiding them forward to their proper end, which is the fear of the Lord. And We are commanded to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Thus we arrange their whole lives, their education, their schedules, their conversations, their entertainment, their discipline around that end to bring about that purpose, or at least we should. Your children don't always understand why you take something away or why you discipline, why you bring something into their life that's hard. They don't always understand, but you see a bigger picture as their parent as you are governing them and caring for them to their appointed or proper end. You can see this in every area of life. If you're a leader, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, if you're a parent, in any of this, you're guiding someone to their proper end. And that person you're guiding doesn't always see the picture the way you see it. And so as you're guiding them, they don't always understand what you're doing and how it contributes to that end. And they have to trust you Listen, if we do this, though we're sinful and wicked, how much more will the Lord, who is perfect, guide us toward our appointed end? Even if we don't understand everything he's doing to that end. You may never understand in your life why the Lord does the things he does. But you either trust him, that he knows how to guide you to your appointed end, or you don't trust him. Those are your options. You become like the kid who shakes his hand in the face of his parent and says, you don't really know what's best for me. Listen, I I, I want you to understand, when our 18-year-olds do that, we start to wonder, do I? Maybe they're right, right? Because there are some things they're pointing out that are very helpful and good to think about. But if your one-year-old does that, you think this is ridiculous, right? You have no clue. Understand, the vast disparity between you and God is far greater than your one-year-old and you. It's infinitely greater. And yet you're shaking your fist in his face saying, you don't know what's best for me. He is working in every instant toward our salvation and every instant in our lives, he is working toward our salvation. That's why Romans eight twenty eight is a certain promise for us. For all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you hear that? All things are working together for what? Your good. God is sustaining, bearing, holding up all things toward an appointed end which is your good, which you are called to according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, in other words, whom he set his loving care upon, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what end? To be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn or have the supremacy among many brothers. And those whom he foreknew, And predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From every instant of your life throughout human history to this moment, the Lord is working toward that end that you might be like his son to the praise of his glory. And that is your good. That's why you can declare with Paul. right? That's why you can declare with him when he comes to the next verse and he says, he he begins to just sort of, if you will, break into worship if God is for us? Who can be against us? Will he who gave us his own son, that's the greater, not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the lesser. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. More than that, it's Christ who was raised from the dead, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, whoever intercedes for us. That's why he can say, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Son is working all things together for our good, and what is that Good that we should be saved and sanctified and glorified and made like him and thus in fellowship with the blessed Trinity forever. That leads to my second point. You might be like, what? <laughs> Let me try to land the plane on this one quickly. It, it really is kind of, I've been driving at it this whole time. Second point is he provides redemption to his creation. He provides redemption to his creation, which is its appointed end. You look back at Hebrews 1.3. He upholds, the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now look what it goes on to say. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews here is speaking of the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins. And of Christ's resurrection ascension. But before I go further, I want to remind you. Don't lose sight of this tie between God's providence, his providing in day-to-day life, and God's providence in redemption. They're tied together. He upholds all things to their appointed end, which is redemption. That's why Paul can say, for example, we didn't go on in Colossians, but I want you to hear this. You don't need to turn there for the sake of time. I want you to hear what Paul goes on to in Colossians after he says that all things are holding together in him, he goes on to say this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you hear it? He is Lord of all. He has created it all, He sustains it all to what end? To reconciliation with himself via the cross. In case you think I'm stretching the the text too much here, I want you to remember what he said in Ephesians 1:7 through10, when he came in and said that God has blessed us with this salvation in the beloved, in whom the beloved, in whom we have redemption of our sins our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins. And then he goes on to say, and he's lavished upon us insight into the mystery of his will. And what was the mystery of his will? That he would unite all things in heaven and earth in him. The son has come to redeem us through the cross. He was put forth to that purpose as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. I don't know if you hear it. The son was the one through whom all was created. And thus, he is the one through whom all things are reconciled and recreated. He carries all things to their appointed end in himself. And in the midst of every other provision he makes in creating and upholding all things, his central act of provision, the provision that all other provision was carrying all things toward, is the provision of the cross. It was on the cross that the creator and sustainer of all things stood condemned in our place, in the place of the rebellious creature, and it's at the cross that he atoned for your sins once for all. In the comparative language of the Hebrews of Hebrews, every creature ever offered for atonement was ultimately a provision that was but a shadow, a foretaste of the ultimate Atoning provision of the Son. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say that he sat down. After making purifications for sins, he sat down. There was no place for priests in the temple to sit down. Their work continued year after year. But Christ sat down because his work was completed. He sat down to announce to you it is finished. The debt is paid in full. Further, the author of Hebrews tells us he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of him. In other words, he is rightly honored as the Lord and King. Christian, think about this. Can there be a greater atonement for your sins than the one who created and sustains and is Lord of all things? Is there some sin that you can commit that stands against the power of his blood to cover it all. If you committed the sins of every man of a thousand worlds, you could not begin to exhaust even an infinitesimal speck of the infinite grace in the atonement of the Son. Here is the point of the author of this letter. Because of who the Son is, he can affect the kind of redemption that he affects, a perfect and complete redemption. And he can provide the kind of revelation he provides, the final word. In the new covenant, God communicated to us most clearly, most expressly in his Son, through whom he created the world. The Son who upholds the world by the word of his power. The Son who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The son who offered atonement for us, declared it as finished, sitting down at the right hand of God and who rules and reigns over us forever. This is our savior, the one who graciously governs all things to bring us into fellowship with our triune Lord. This is the one to whom we sing and pray and whose word we receive as he gives himself to us by the Spirit in corporate worship. This is the one to whom we return in every circumstance in life, remembering that whatever's going on, whether we understand it or not, and folks, most of the time you won't, you know who your Savior and Lord is. And if he has worked throughout human history and even now in your life to bring you to your appointed end, most gloriously and listlessly in the cross, how will he not? Also, with Christ, graciously give you all things. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would help us to understand how good your Son is, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he commands and things are. Ask that we would learn to trust that you are a good father that your son cares for us and is carrying us forth to our appointed end which is our good that we might be in blessed fellowship with the trinity father we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds to drive this deep into us so that in all things we might return to your praise giving thanks in all circumstances having joy Without ceasing, being constantly prayerful, knowing our need for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.